Welcome to Idaho SESTA's podcast, where we'll be focusing on classroom management this year. This is a place for general and special education teachers of all grade levels to hear about topics important to helping you develop effective classroom management practices to improve student performance and maintain appropriate behavior in your classroom. I'm Kylie Atkinson, Behavior Coordinator with Idaho SESTA, and I provide support in Regions 5 and 6. Today, we're going to take a deeper dive into thinking functionally. Before listening to this podcast, I highly recommend to go back and listen to the Thinking Functionally podcast that was sent out last year. In the Thinking Functionally podcast, there's some things that we covered. First thing that we covered is about thinking functionally and what it means. Thinking functionally means we're constantly thinking about why the child is doing what they are doing and what is the function or purpose of the behavior. Even though we may not be doing a full-blown functional behavior assessment, diving deeper into that, thinking functionally is still an important part of matching interventions that really work. We also discussed the four functions of behavior along with strategies that can be used and common behaviors that we see in school and aligning that with functional thinking. Okay, the first thing I'm going to talk about is reviewing the four functions of behavior from the last podcast of Thinking Functionally. We have four functions of behavior when we're talking about why students do behavior or anyone we know do behavior, including us. They are escape, attention, sensory, or tangible. First one is escape. Escape is when the student or another person or you even is engaging in the behavior to escape or avoid something in the environment. An example is a student is asked to do a math worksheet and they tear up the math worksheet because they're trying to escape having to do that math worksheet. An example in my own life um, is in college, I broke up with a boyfriend and there was a way that I would walk to my classes every day that we would always run into each other. While we were dating, it was awesome. (laughs) But now I didn't wanna run into him anymore. So I purposely went a whole different way to my class that was about three times as long to avoid him. So that way I wouldn't have to run into him. That's an escape maintained behavior or I was doing that behavior to escape and avoid a situation I didn't wanna have to deal with. Next is attention. This is when the student or just adults or anyone is engaging in the behavior to gain attention. This could be adult attention. It could be peer attention, it could be both. Sometimes the student may be seeking attention from a specific person and it doesn't have to be positive attention to work. Negative attention can work too. For example, the student going to the front office to see the principal because he was doing something in class that was inappropriate, he's getting sent out of the classroom and he's getting attention from the principal. Even if it's the principal reprimanding him, he's still getting attention. And some kids like that, even if it's not good attention. That's an example for a student. For us as adults, one of the ways we get attention a lot is posting on social media. How many times have you come across a post that you rolled your eyes, (laughs) but people are giving it lots of attention? We do things like that to get attention. Next is sensory. This is when the student is engaging in the behavior to gain or escape some type of sensory input. So this happens whether or not someone is in the room. Sometimes we label behaviors as sensory seeking, but they're actually not fully sensory seeking. They should be doing this behavior alone, whether we're there or not. Examples are hand flapping, rocking, chewing on their shirt, squeezing their body, 
I had a student that loved to pick her nose, (laughs) which is super gross, but it's because she liked to touch the bone that was in her nose, which is a very sensory seeking behavior. She would do this all the time, whether we were in class with her or she was alone, she's on the bus. So that showed me it was a very sensory seeking behavior. Lastly, we have tangible. The student is engaging in the behavior to gain access to a tangible item such as food, a toy, or an activity. An example of this is when a student hits a peer to get a toy that the other peer is playing with. Or if they see a student that's first in line and they wanna be first in line and they push that student out of their spot so they can be first in line, that's a tangible behavior because they want to be first in line. We do this adults as too. There are things that we want access to or items that we like and we make sure that we get them. There are a lot of foods that I really like. I make sure I could get access to them when I want to. So that's a review of all the functions. Now we're going to go into reviewing the Thinking Functionally podcast and some of the principles that were talked about there. What does it mean to think functionally? A lot of the time teachers will come to us and they have put tons of interventions in place, but nothing is worked and they're at their wits end. We call this the kitchen sink approach. It can be pretty ineffective because the interventions being used are not being specifically matched to the function of behavior. It's like looking at a bag of tricks and throwing everything at the problem, hoping that something will work, hoping that something will stick. That is not a strategy. Strategy is thought out and planned. It's not something that just you randomly pull out and just start trying it. So here are some examples. My husband's a football coach. And right now we're in the month of October. So thankfully we're nearing the end of the season. (laughs) But with watching games and hearing him talk about plays, there are a lot of strategies that go into what play to use, when and why. The coaches meet every week to review playbooks, to watch video footage of the other team, and they start to strategize and determine what plays are going to be used and what will be best to use for an upcoming game with a specific school. Then they use those skills that they targeted and practice those for the week. They don't just randomly start picking plays and practice them and hoping something sticks. They come up with a strategy. Another example is I'm in the middle of house renovation right now. If anyone's been there, it's been the longest couple of months ever. Right now, we have someone putting in a new banister on our stairs. It is not something that you can just slap onto the stairs and use whatever tools you have. I've learned a lot about this. There are certain bolts, there are certain connectors, there are certain posts. There's a certain way that you have to do it depending on the way that the stairs were built. There's all these different things that go into a strategy of how to put up the banister in the safest, most effective way and make sure that's most structurally sound version of it. They use strategy. Thinking functionally means choosing the right tool to match the function. It's keeping the why in our minds. There's a purpose behind that behavior And that behavior continues to happen because it's fulfilling the need. That purpose is the function. And the functions are the four functions I reviewed earlier. Escape, attention, tangible, and sensory. We get asked all the time. I have someone who bites. I have someone who runs off. I have a hitter. What should I do? My answer every single time is to think functionally. That's the strategy to use. The strategy is not based on what they are doing, and we call that the topography and behavior speak. It's going to be based on why they are doing it. 
There are two different strategies that we can use to intervene. We can either teach someone another way to get their needs met, which is what they covered in the last podcast, or we can prevent it from happening, which is what I will dive into deeper. So to review the podcast from last time, when we're trying to teach someone another way to get their needs met, how do we do that? In the last podcast, they listed three common behaviors they see in school, non-compliance, elopement or running off, and aggression. And they discussed some strategies that you can use to teach someone another way to get their needs met based on function. So as a review, for elopement, they talked about the student eloping to escape work. So if that behavior is escape-based, how do we teach a way to escape the work that's more appropriate than running away? For now, it could be teaching them to ask for help or ask for a break. If elopement's for sensory purposes, what are we going to do? In the last podcast, they gave an example of someone running off because they wanted to grab a straw because they liked playing with the straw. Instead, they taught him a way to ask for the straw. For non-compliance, if we're seeing it for escape, they talked about teaching them to ask for a break from the work. If the non-compliance is for attention, they discuss teaching what we call replacement behavior, another way to get their needs met of how to gain attention appropriately. Be raising their hand, it could be asking for help. Aggression was the last behavior they talked about. They gave examples if it was a tangible function for that behavior. If someone is hitting to get a preferred food item or they're pushing the student to get out of a swing because they want the swing, How are we going to teach them how to get access to those things so they don't have to push or start hitting? So in summary, that's what they went over in the last podcast. Now, you've been listening. You've kind of drifted off to sleep. It's time to wake up because I'm going to start diving deeper into what we call prevention strategies, which are going to be the best strategies to use when working with students. The most bang for your buck. So pay attention. Ready? Let's go. The other strategy we can use is to prevent it from happening. The key differences between this and what we were talking about are what we call antecedent strategies or setting event strategies, which I'll explain a little bit later. That's your more proactive approach. We're proactively looking at what in the environment can we change? What accommodations would work? What can we do to make it better for the student that will prevent them from getting triggered even in the first place? It's much easier to prevent a fire from starting and to have tons of strategies to prevent that fire from starting than to deal with actually having to put the fire out. How many tips are there for fire safety, videos that are put out, posters, all these things explain how we can make sure to be safe with fires. Those are a lot easier to do than to actually put out the fire when it happens. When a fire happens and it spreads, it takes a ton of people a lot of resources, and a lot of time to get it under control. We just don't have that time in the education world. We need to make sure we have as many proactive strategies in place to prevent the fire from starting. There is huge power in preventative measures, things that we can do beforehand. If we're even a little bit reactive, it's not going to be as powerful as being proactive. And that's what the rest of this podcast is going to be about. When we look at preventing the behavior from happening, there are two types of strategies we can use and combine. They are setting event strategies and antecedent strategies. Before we dive deeper into those strategies, I'm gonna explain what setting events and antecedents are and what we call the behavior chain. When we're analyzing a behavior, 
The easiest way to do that is to map out the chain of behavior. The behavior chain has four parts, setting events, antecedents, behavior, and then consequences. We already know what the behavior is. It's what happened. And the consequences are what change in the environment immediately following the behavior or what is called the function of behavior, which we went over, escape, attention, tangible, or sensory. Setting events are environmental changes that may increase the likelihood that behavior may even occur. So that's the first step in the chain. Some examples are sleep deprivation, medication, home life trauma, being hungry, and other things. Next is our antecedents. I like to call this the trigger or what happens right before the behavior. If you're thinking of a racetrack, there's all these conditions and things that make it easier to race or not as easy to race. Those are your setting events. And the trigger to me is when the girl takes the checkered flag and puts it down. That's what happens right before the cars start to race. That's what an antecedent is. It's the trigger. Some examples are students asked to work. It's time to transition. They see a preferred item they want. When we're talking about a behavior chain, we're talking about the setting event. The antecedent is the trigger. Then there's behavior. And then there's what happens after the behavior, the consequence. Here's an example. My setting event is I woke up really late because I didn't get a lot of sleep. That's the setting event. My antecedent is I'm driving in traffic and then someone cuts me off. My behavior is I start cussing and getting really angry and the car in front of me sees me. So then they go back to the other lane. So that's the consequence. That's what happened right after I did the behavior. That's an example of a behavior chain. For a student, it can look like the setting event is they didn't get a lot of sleep. Maybe they came to school hungry. Antecedent is they're asked to do math work that they don't want to do. Their behavior is they rip it up. And then afterwards, the teacher tries to redirect them, but then ends up not giving them another paper and moves on to teaching the rest of the class. That's the behavior chain. Now that I've explained what setting events and antecedents are, let's talk strategies for each one. For setting events, the main question that as a team you need to ask is, what will the team do to remove or neutralize the setting event? It all depends on what the setting events are. Here's some common setting events we see and some examples of strategies you can use. Medication or medical needs is a big one. Sometimes when students are on medicine, it can really affect them. It can affect their appetite, can affect their sleep schedule, or just having medical needs that haven't been diagnosed yet can affect a lot of the way that they act. Some strategy we can come up with is a medicine schedule with the family knowing if they took their medicine each day. And then if they didn't, we know what the day kind of needs to look like and plan for that. We can do a scheduled check-in each morning so we can determine, you know, where they're at, how they're feeling. And then just to have a plan with family when there are side effects from medicine and how we can neutralize that at school to the best of our ability. Sleep is another big one. Has anyone listening had a horrible night's sleep and then try to go to work the next day. It is hard. For students who have disabilities, sometimes not getting enough sleep is part of that, or a medication they've been taking affects their sleep. A good strategy for this is communication with home and then adjusting our schedule for the day. If they need some more sleep, I'd rather a student come in, sleep for 10 minutes, and then be ready to work the rest of the day than having to deal with that as a setting event for the whole day that they're tired. 
Another one is home life and trauma. This is another really hard one. This is hard because sometimes, well, I should say a lot of the time as a school team, you're not going to have a lot of control over that. This is where I would work with your team in your building and collaborate with as many people as you can. Do you have a school counselor that can do check-ins with the student and work on trauma-based counseling with them? That way we can discuss what's going on and get them some help and really making them feel safe at school, letting them know school is a safe place. Last is hunger. When I'm hungry, I become hangry. I don't know if anyone else is like that, but that's how I am. Hunger is a really easy one. If they're hungry, just making sure we have snacks provided to them that they can eat so they're not hungry anymore. And that way they're ready to learn. Now let's discuss antecedent strategies. The main question that as a team you need to ask is, can the trigger, so the antecedent, can the trigger be removed? Can the need be met ahead of time? Reminder, antecedents are what occurred in the environment immediately before the behavior. The best way to determine an antecedent strategy is to determine the function of behavior. When we know the function of a behavior or we're thinking functionally, then we can meet the function ahead of time and work on preventing the behavior from happening. Now I'm going to go into strategies for each of the functions. So the first one is escape. What are some antecedent strategies we can do for escape? If it is for escape, determining what the exact trigger the student wants to escape from is the first step. Once we determine what the student is trying to escape from or avoid, then we can put interventions into place. One of the main escape behaviors we see is work avoidance. Here are some ideas for antecedent strategies to address some work avoidance. We can modify the amount of problems that the student has to do. This could look like asking them to do all the even problems or ask the student to circle only 10 problems that they want to do. If it's specific to handwriting, that's another one that we see all the time. Allow the student to offer a verbal explanation instead of a written one. They can dictate the answer to a program that will transcribe it to them. They can record their answer and submit it to you via email. They can use different types of writing utensils or have them write on a whiteboard. Really, the key is to determine the point of the work you are giving the student and what you really want them to show you. Remember, 99% of the time, a student is trying to escape work due to a skill deficit that they have that we need to be addressing. I'm going to pull from a research article that was done by Kimberly A. Luke at a California State University. She was trying to see what were strategies that they could use to assist in decreasing escape maintained behaviors when it came to antecedent strategies. They give a list of a couple of strategies that I'm going to go over. The first one is complexity of task requirements. How hard is the task that we're asking them to do? What are some strategies we can use? One is reducing the task length. It's looking at what the student can handle. Sometimes students can only sit for 10 to 15 minutes and trying to get them to do a 30 minute activity is going to trigger behavior. A team could do a baseline assessment to see how long the student on average can maintain attention throughout an activity. And then from there, determine what the length of their work time can be before they need a break. I would rather a student work for 15 minutes, take a break and then come back then try to get 30 minutes straight and have them get triggered and have a huge explosive behavior that takes hours to help them de-escalate from. 
we do this naturally as adults. If we have an activity coming up that we know that's going to be hard, we tend to work for spurts and take breaks because that's what we can handle. So let's set that up for the child. Another antecedent strategy to reduce the complexity of task requirements is to start with simple, short tasks that the student can complete and then working up to harder tasks. We call this behavior momentum. We do this as adults. If we have a hard task to do, we break it into manageable chunks and start with the easiest thing first and kind of work up to something harder. Another antecedent strategy is to make sure that the instruction and tasks being asked of the student match the student's skill level. This can also include the pace they can handle instruction at. Think about yourself. Have you ever tried to do a task that is just too hard for you and you end up just not doing it? For me, putting together furniture is way above what I can do. So either I pay someone to do it or have my husband help and assist me. So let's match their skill level to what they can do. My husband knows that I can screw things in if he's already put the screw there. I can start to screw it in. So he's assisted and set it up for me. And then there's a piece of it that I can do. Let's do that for our students. Next is embedding novel tasks and incorporating task variation. Now, what that means is when we're having a student start a new task or do a task that's too hard for them, if we can introduce it by pairing it with something that they enjoy or something they've already mastered, then that provides the student with a feeling of success and satisfaction. The article references a study done by Winterling, Dunlap, and O'Neill. It showed that lower rates of problem behaviors occurred when new or hard tasks were used with tasks they already knew how to do or something they liked to do. One of the figures in the study showed when the tasks were introduced, and something that they liked to do or something they were good at was paired with it, behaviors declined to zero, guys, zero. They did this, again, by taking tasks that the student already mastered and interspersing them with the new tasks they were asking them to do. We do this as adults, too. How many times have you had to work out <laughs> or you've had to do a hard task in the house that you don't want to do, so you play music or you do the task for a little bit and then go do something fun for a little bit and then come back. We do this as adults and it helps us get the task done. Why can't we do this for students? It's really easy to do. Ask them to do two hard math problems and let them do a math problem that they like to do. Super easy. Or if you can let them listen to music while they're doing some work, let them listen to music and they will get their work done or we'll see behaviors decrease. Next is instruction time. So it's looking at what's happening during instructional time. Is the instructional time structured and concise so it can help the students focus? A lot of students struggle with focusing. And when there's added distractions, lack of clear instructions or structure, that can lead to a student being triggered more easily. Antecedent strategies that we can use for this are visual cues that can assist the student in organizing the information that is being presented. Next is providing choices. This is probably one of my favorite antecedent strategies and one of my go-tos because it's quick and easy and I don't need to put a lot of prep into it. What does it mean to provide choices? Choices can motivate children to display positive behaviors because they feel a part of the lesson. Research shows that just offering the choices, not what the choices actually are, but just offering choices 
showed a decrease in behavior. Some ways that we can do that are choices between activities. Would you like to do the math or the reading now? Would you like to do problems one and two or problems three and four? You could look at types of instructional materials that they can use. Do you want the red marker or the red crayon to use when you're writing? Do you wanna use pencil or do you wanna use marker? Do you want to write on a whiteboard or write on a piece of paper? Another one is the arrangement of the environment. I don't know about you, but I like my workspace to look a certain way. And if it's too cluttered or too many things are happening or it's too loud, I have a hard time focusing. I like to shut my door, have a clean desk and start working. What can we do in the environment that the student's in to help them? What choices can we give? Do you want to go sit in the corner to get this done? Or would you like to sit with your friend to get this done? Just offering choices helps a ton. It helps them feel in control, even though they're your choices that you're providing. That was escape. Now we're going to talk about antecedent strategies for attention. How are we going to prevent the student needing to engage in problem behavior to gain access to attention? Here are some strategies. First, let's schedule the student getting attention frequently on what we call a non-contingent schedule, which means we're just going to set up a time-based schedule, not on, based on how they're behaving, but we're just going to set up a time-based schedule to give them attention. If we know a student does problem behavior about every 30 minutes to get attention, start giving them attention every 15 minutes. You're going to beat them to it, basically. Now, I know a lot of you out there are like, well, I don't have time. I don't have time to do that. And I get that. But it doesn't need to be a lot of attention or a long time with attention. It can be really quick. It can be walking by the student's desk and giving a thumbs up. Or it can be giving quick, specific praise to the student. Like, hey, Jimmy, I really liked how you raised your hand right there. Give me a high five. That was less than four seconds. Another strategy is to use class-wide peer tutoring or pair students together to get work done. If they like peer attention, let them have peer attention in a way that you control and organize. You can also assign that student a classroom job or responsibility that's just their job that can be done frequently. Then they're getting your attention and peer attention for a good preferred behavior you want to see them do. Lastly, just providing more opportunities for students to respond. Not only is this a good instructional practice to use in your classroom, but it can help them feel like they are getting more attention because they're getting to respond to you more often and they can gain attention for appropriate responses versus when they're engaging in behavior we don't want to see. Next is tangible. So the question to ask is, how do I let the student gain access to the preferred item or activity beforehand if I can. The first strategy we can use is providing a visual of when the student can access that tangible item or activity, whether that's on a time-based schedule or if that student's gonna earn it. That way they can see when it's still available. When I think of this, I don't know if anyone's ever gone, I can't remember the name of the restaurant, but it's a restaurant where they serve the different types of meat. And you got this little cube thing for your table that you would signal when you wanted the meat. So either if you put green, then they could bring more meat to your table, but if you put red, then they couldn't. So it gave a visual to the staff of when to bring you stuff. So let's just flip that, have a visual that shows, hey, it's green right now, you can access this item you wanna access. It's red right now, right now we can't. 
and be providing that, whether they're earning it or just knowing the times of day that they can have access to it. If the accessibility to that item can be increased without causing a disruption, then let them have more access to it. If not, then find times of day they can access it or ways to earn it. Another strategy to consider is what we call non-contingent reinforcement, which just means provide a tangible item or activity on a time-based schedule so they have a lot of access to that item and they don't feel like they need to engage in behavior to access that. The last strategy is to maximize choice as much as possible with the student. They can choose how and when to access things. Even if it's not the item they want, if they feel like they have more control and gaining access to other things that they want or things that you're providing, that might help with that tangible seeking behavior. Last is sensory. The question to ask here is how can we provide access to the sensory need ahead of time? For behaviors that are gaining access to sensory input, here are some strategies we can use. First is to provide a very enriching environment with lots of engaging tasks and activities. Students with high sensory needs do better when they're learning through highly engaging activities and environments, lots of movement, lots of touching things, lots of those type of activities. Another strategy is to provide time and space for those sensory activities the student is seeking out. Again, this can be called non-contingent access to sensory activities. So giving a time-based schedule for sensory activity. An example is every 10 minutes, the student can have access to a sensory activity for two minutes and then they can come back. If a student is doing behavior to escape or avoid too much sensory input, here are some strategies to use. First could be to provide and teach them the use of a calming area to be able to regulate their body when they're overwhelmed. And along with that, teach calming or de-escalating skills so the student can regulate themselves. In closing today, we took a deeper dive into preventative strategies that can be used ahead of time to help reduce the behavior. These were setting events and antecedent strategies, and we based them on a function. Hopefully you've come away with more understanding of what strategies you can add to your tool belt to use and to always base it on function. So you're picking the right tool for the right function, not just using whatever tool you have. If you guys have any questions, please reach out to us. You can request assistance from your behavioral coordinator by reaching out to us independently through our email, or you can submit a ticket through our help desk. That's at idahosessa.org slash home. And you just click on the request assistance page. I'd like to thank Idaho Training Clearinghouse for helping to bring this podcast to you. The ITC has been making special education training opportunities and resources available to school professional and parents for many years. Whether you're looking for behavioral strategies, how to write high quality support for professionals, assistive technology, collaborating with general education teachers, and so much more, the ITC is a great first stop. Topics are covered with modules, webinars, and downloadable resources right from your desktop or handheld device. Visit idahotc.com and begin your search with our behavior topics page to see what's already there. I want to thank you guys for joining me today. I was really excited to bring all this content to you. And I want to give a special thank you for giving me your time and your ears. You can find this in future podcasts, as well as other great resources on topics relevant to classroom management on the Out of the Box series page, located on the Idaho Training Clearinghouse at idahotc.com behavior. 
Thanks for listening. Have a great rest of your day.